Welcome to the Liberty Baptist Sermon Archives. The message you're about to hear was preached at Liberty Baptist Church in Easton, Massachusetts. You can find out more about us or contact us at mylibertybaptist.org or just look us up on Facebook. And now we hope that this message from God's Word will be a blessing to you. Judges chapter number 11 as we get into God's Word tonight. And I feel like our text will provide us a little bit of a theme that has been somewhat common to us lately. And that probably is because of our study on the judges right now. And as a pastor, sometimes when I see a similar theme in preaching, uh, either through a Sunday morning and a Sunday night service, or maybe something I feel like we've been covering a lot in uh, weeks gone by, uh, it's easy for me to maybe feel the pressure maybe to feel the temptation to switch and do something else but I can tell you that I have found that there are times that God brings us to certain texts or certain themes over and over again and the reason why is I believe that there's something God is really wanting us to learn that there's something that he wants us to know maybe we're not getting it on the first or second time or maybe the preacher's not getting it on the first or second time and so it requires us to kind of go back and to be able to learn a little bit more about what God would have in store for us and tonight I feel like that is the case and so I'm not apologizing ahead of time for the preaching uh, tonight not in any way but trying to give you a little bit of my heart and a little bit of understanding uh, about where we are and uh, the title of tonight's message is this from failure to faithfulness and just by knowing the text you can probably understand where there would be some overlap because the disciples well they kind of went on the same journey didn't they I mean they were really failures in many ways uh, when you consider Peter when you consider Thomas when you consider others they went from failure in the gospels in many ways to faithfulness in the book of Acts and so we see the same basic theme here tonight in the book of Judges but I do want to tackle it in a little bit of a different way and hope that will be a help and a blessing to you now consider this, in our culture today, particularly with younger people, I think there's a lot of what I would call a victimhood mentality. W would we all agree about that tonight? That uh, that has happened with a younger generation, and that is maybe even true with older generations as well, as that's been more prevalent with the younger, that others have taken hold of this as well. What I mean by a victimhood mentality is that someone who has difficult circumstances oftentimes will rather complain about their lot in life instead of doing something to try to better the lot in life that they have. And certainly we all could go through it. And if we want to really encourage each other tonight, we could all maybe share about the difficulties we've had in life. And we could leave here probably crying and weeping about how, <laughs> how hard life is. And we we'd probably leave here not very helped at all, all things considered, because all of us had a story. And a lot of us had some hardships and difficulties we've had to overcome. Our hardships and difficulties are different because our lives are different. But yet none of us have necessarily walked the primrose path. All of us have had to go through some difficult times to get where we were. But I would say many of us who are here tonight probably have realized that the best way to be able to do that is to commit your ways unto the Lord and allow him to grow you instead of just sitting around complaining about how life has treated you and not getting anything done. One person said it this way, life isn't over when you're dealt a bad hand. It all depends upon how you play the hand you're dealt. Now, if that's true about something like cards, which <laughs> really is of no eternal value whatsoever, how much more true is that about life? Uh, where we have been given a bad hand sometimes with some of the things that come in life. Listen, some of the problems we have in life are our own fault. Some of the problems we have in life 
are like the soccer players. You know what they call it? An own goal. You know what that means? You scored on your own goal. I mean, what an embarrassing thing that is to be. Uh, and it's easier in soccer than you think, believe it or not, to be able to score on your own goal. I mean, I mean it's one of the worst things that you can do uh, if you're playing soccer. But, you know, I find a lot of the problems that I have in life are own goals. It's the times that I have created the problem or the issue due to S-I-N, sin. I've indulged in my flesh. I've allowed my flesh to do that which I know God has forbidden, and he has forbidden it for my best good and for my profit, but yet I have found that my way is better, that my way is more productive, and I've ignored the things of God, and I've tried to go my own way, and I get myself in a mess, and I say, Lord, why did you do this to me? And he says, son, why did you do this to yourself? I told you not to get into it in the first place. And a lot of the difficulties in life that we have are from that very reason. We just get involved in sin, and we make quite a mess of life. But wouldn't we also agree that there are some things that happen in our lives that aren't our fault at all? It wasn't because we made bad choices. It wasn't because uh, we indulged in the flesh or in sin. It just so happens that because we live in a wicked, sin-cursed world, that there are things that have been perpetuated to us. There are things that have been happening to us. Things that were totally and completely out of our control, not because of our sin, not because of our self-will, but just because we were living life and bad things happened and we didn't even see them coming. In fact, sometimes they happened to us and we didn't realize they were happening to us until later on. And because of that, if we're not careful, we can slip into this mentality of just complaining about, woe is me, my life is bad, I can never serve God, God can never use someone like me. And we have to be careful not to get into a mentality like that. And tonight, as we look at Jephthah, uh, the ninth judge here in Judges chapter number 11, I believe there's a lesson here that God wants to drill into our hearts. And I believe there's a specific application in this lesson that's specific to this text with us this evening that will be a help and a blessing to us beyond what we've heard about with the disciples, uh, beyond what we've learned about with the failures of Peter and the failures of Thomas and the failures of others. Uh, but as we look at Jephthah and some of the decisions that he made, but some of the things that happened to him that were completely out of his control, that there's some things that can be a real help to us in our text tonight. Now, Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty man of valor, and he was the son of an harlot, and Gilead begat Jephthah. Now, just by that first verse, can you tell where this is going tonight? He was a mighty man of valor, but he was the son of a harlot. So just by understanding that first verse, let what I just gave you as an introduction kind of sink in, and let's continue reading. Verse 2, and Gilead's wife bare him sons, and his wife's sons grew up, and they thrust out Jephthah, and said unto him, Thou shalt not inherit in our father's house, for thou art the son of a strange woman. Jim Jephthah fled from his brethren, and dwelt in the land of Tob. And there were gathered vain men to Jephthah and went out with him. Now, that might seem worrisome to you in verse number three, uh, but I'll say just kind of put a pin in that. We're going to go back to it uh, because it may not seem as bad as it looks just from its face. And so I just want to put that thought in your mind as we continue. And it came to pass in process of time that the children of Ammon made war against Israel. And it was so that when the children of Ammon made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to fetch Jephthah out of the land of Tob. And they said unto Jephthah, Come, and be our captain, that we may fight with the children of Ammon. And Jephthah said unto the elders of Gilead, Did not ye hate me and expel me out of my father's house? And why are ye come unto me now when ye are in distress? And the elders of Gilead said unto Jephthah, Therefore we turn again to thee now, that thou mayest go with us and fight against the children of Ammon, and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Then Jephthah said unto the elders of Gilead, 
If ye bring me home again to fight against the children of Ammon, and the Lord deliver them before me, shall I be your head? And the elders of Gilead said unto Jephthah, The Lord be witness between us, if we do not so according to thy words. Then Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and captain over them. And Jephthah uttered all his words before the Lord in Mitzpah. Now, there's a lot to follow, and we're going to cover that next week. And uh, you might be familiar with Jephthah because of a vow that he made at the end of the chapter. And I can't wait to talk about that. But that's coming next week. In the meantime, we're going to cover just these 11 verses in our message tonight. So thank you for your attendance to God's words. By standing, you may be seated tonight. As you can see from what we just read, the life of Jephthah was one of hardship right from his birth. Some of the reasons for his hardship, I believe, are obvious, while others are not as readily apparent. Uh, Consider some of the reasons why his life was so difficult. Number one, this evening, uh, he was deemed a failure due to his birth. Think about that right from the start. How would you like to be behind the eight ball right from your birth? But that's the way Jephthah was. It says in verse number one, it says, Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty man of valor, and he was the son of an harlot, and Gilead begat Jephthah. You know, to be the son of a harlot would have been a great disgrace in most cultures, but especially so in the culture in which they were living at that time. Uh, To be of the Jewish nation, to be of the people of God, and to know uh, that of your parentage, your mother was one who played the harlot would have been something, would have been a source of great embarrassment. And you would say, well, pastor, well, certainly that's the case for maybe his mother, but what would that have to do with Jephthah? I mean, why would he have to carry that burden? And my answer to you would be this. Have you not lived life? (laughs) Have you not seen how the stigma of a parent uh, can sometimes pass down to a child? Uh, Maybe you have experienced that in your own life. And certainly uh, that's what happened here. There's no doubt from reading the next verses that there was a stigma that carried over to Jephthah that he started right from his birth. If we could put it this way, he was behind the eight ball. Uh, Right from his very birth, he already had some difficulties uh, in his life. Now, it wasn't just the fact that his mother was a harlot. I believe there was actually even more to it than that if you look at verse number two. Look at what it says there. It says, And Gilead's wife bare him sons, and his wife's sons grew up, and they thrust out Jephthah and said unto him, Thou shalt not inherit in our father's house, for thou art the son of a strange woman. Now, stop there for a second. You might just think when you see that term strange woman, you think of, well, they are referencing the fact that his mother was a harlot, that his mother was a loose woman. But I would suggest to you that's actually not what they're saying here in verse number two. Uh, In fact, what they're saying, uh, that term strange woman, uh, if you were to look in the Hebrew, doesn't uh, talk about the way she was living her life, but it would have talked about that she was a stranger from the household of Israel. So not only was his mother a harlot, but his mother would have been one outside of the household of Israel, that she would have been a Gentile. What would that have made him? In essence, a half Jew. And so not only did he bear the stigma in his nation of having a mother that was a harlot, but now he was also born as a half Jew as well, literally considered a half breed by those that he lived with, including in his own family. So can you see that this guy's got some problems right from the start? He was deemed a failure due to his birth, but I also see this. He was deemed as a failure due to his home. He was due to his home as well, a broken home at at that Um, When we think of broken homes today, what do we think of? We think of divorce, and that is the most common way to consider a broken home. 
Uh, of course, statistics tell us that 50% of marriages today end in a divorce and that uh, even within churches that the numbers are very similar to that. And when we say broken home, a lot of times that's what we reference, that there's a home where mother and father are now not living together and there's children that are involved. Uh, but I would say to you that there's more that is involved in a broken home than just divorce. That I've seen times when there are parents who are together, but they're not together. I've seen parents uh, who are uh, living in the same home, uh, but they are living in completely different worlds. Uh, I've seen it before. We could also say that those are broken homes as well, that it doesn't just take the finality of divorce papers to make a home broken, but anytime a home does not work uh, in the way that God has intended it, uh, Psalm 127, unless the Lord build the house, they labor in vain to build it. That's what Psalm 127 says. And, and, and he lives in what we would consider a, a broken home, not necessarily because his parents were divorced, but it says in verse number two that now that his father had committed this transgression with the harlot and, and thank the Lord that his father took responsibility for the child uh, and took him into his own home uh, as his own because he was his own. But it says in verse number two that Gilead, now he lived in the land of Gilead, but his father's name was also Gilead. Uh, he says that Gilead also had a wife, and that wife had children as well. So that would mean that now he is living in a home where he has a bunch of half-brothers and half-sisters, and it seems like they don't like him very much. How much so? Well, because they told him by the time he was a certain age, we don't like you. <laughs> Get out of the house. We don't want you anywhere near here. What was the reason for that? Well, it doesn't seem like it's because of anything that Jephthah did, because what did they reference? They don't say, no, we don't like you, or we don't like the way that you handle yourself. No, they say this, we don't like you because of the fact that your mother was a strange woman. And it seems like every time they looked at Jephthah, all they could think of was Gilead's transgression. All they could think of is the time that dad had a relationship with a harlot and that Jephthah was the product of that. And so because of that, uh, he was considered a, a half-breed, not just between those in the culture, but even within his own home. And so now he has this problem. Now, is this because of anything Jephthah's done? No. Again, they're not referencing anything about Jephthah's character. They're not referencing anything that he has done specifically. It's all about who he was in reference to his mother. And so now he's deemed a failure because of his birth, and he's deemed a failure because he's part of a broken home. None of those are his fault. But not only that, he was deemed a failure due to his banishment. Because what happened? He was banished from his home. But he wasn't just banished from his home. He was banished from his homeland. Look at verse 3. It says, Then Jephthah fled from his brethren and dwelt in the land of Tob. And there were gathered vain men to Jephthah and went out with him. Now, we don't have an exact location of where Tob is in the Bible. However, uh, archaeology and history tells us that Tob uh, would have been to the north of Gilead, almost to Syria. So basically, if you remember in your Bible history, or rather your Bible geography, that the land of Gilead is on the eastern side of the Jordan River. You'll remember that most of the tribes lived on the western side of the Jordan River. Remember, they had to cross the Jordan at the beginning of the book of Joshua. But there were two and a half tribes that said, we would prefer to stay on the eastern side of Jordan. We don't want to cross over the Jordan River. This land is good pasture land. It's good for our cattle. We'd like to stay here. And Moses and Joshua and the Lord agreed to that. They said, the only way you can do so is if all of your men of war cross over and fight along with the other nine and a half tribes. And once the land has been secured, you can go back to this land 
and you can go live there. But Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh that lived on the east side of the Jordan River, that land generally is called Gilead. In fact, that's where Elijah would have been from. Uh, there was a judge in the previous chapter that was also, chapter 10, that was also from Gilead. Uh, there were not many of note that came from Gilead, but there were some for sure. So he's already living, could we put it this way, on the outskirts of the land of Israel. And now he has been banished to the outskirts of the land of Gilead. In fact, he's almost in a foreign nation. It's almost as if he wants to get as far away or needs to get as far away from his people as he can because of the stigma that's been laid upon him. He feels like if he can go somewhere where nobody knows his name, nobody knows his story, nobody knows his mother, then maybe at least he can get a fresh start. But what a life he's already had to live. Not his fault. Nothing that he has done in and of himself. But now he's been banished. And so he's deemed a failure because of his birth and because of his broken home and because of his banishment, uh, but also because of his barrenness, his barrenness as well. Do you know, while he lived in the land of Tob, he ended up getting married. And if you turn to verse number 34 very quickly, this is going to come into play in a major way next week. But in the meantime, just look at this in verse number 34. It says this, and Jephthah came to Mitzpah unto his house and behold his daughter came out to meet him with timbrels and with dances and she was his only child because her uh, be, beside her he had neither son nor daughter now i mentioned often here that i was an only child and and, and i was and i am and uh it, it was a experience growing up but i didn't know any different about what it would be like to have uh, brothers and sisters. In fact, I was talking to someone this morning about the fact of watching uh, my daughters grow up and watching all four of the kids grow up and, and taking great interest in seeing how the brothers and sisters get along with each other and how the dynamics change. And even since Bethany has left the home, the dynamics have changed a little bit more just because uh, that's the way it is. And so uh, I've enjoyed watching that. I've enjoyed seeing that. It's been instructive to me in many ways. Uh, but to be an only child in today's culture is really not a big deal, is it? I mean, it's just uh, kind of a more of a normal thing, to be honest with you, more than anything. Uh, uh, but in that culture, in that time, uh, to be uh, of an only child and your only child was a girl was a problem. Now, why was that? Well, because the line of the family was continued through the man child. And if you didn't have a man child, then what happened? Your family would not continue in your name. And so while Jephthah's wife was not barren in the sense that she was able to have a child, uh, there was a barrenness, if you will, in their family because Jephthah had only one child and that one child was a girl, which to them in their culture, there would have been some that would have considered him accursed because he didn't have a man child to continue his name. So here's a man who's trying to run from his past and he tries to outrun his past. By the way, can I tell you, you can never outrun your past. You can never run fast enough to outrun your past. There's no way to do it. You might as well address it head on uh, because you can do it. Uh, you can try to change it. Uh, you can go incognito. Uh, you can uh, try to change your name, uh, change whatever you want. You can't outrun your past. There's no way to do it. And so here he is. He's gone to the very edge of Israel. And it seems like even there, life's against him because he has one child and it's a girl. And so his life is still considered barren because his name will not continue in the annals of Israel's history. So can we stop here for just a moment and consider these four things? He was a failure. He was deemed a failure due to his birth, deemed a failure due to his broken home, 
deemed a failure due to his banishment, deemed a failure due to his barrenness. Can we stop here for a moment and think about this tonight? That there are things in your life and things in my life that were out of our control and that if we're not careful, they can hinder us from serving God. There are things in your life and things in my life. I'm not talking about those own goals of sin. We'll talk about that in a minute. But I'm talking about things that were done to us, things that were done against us, that were not in our control, uh, but yet they were things that if we allowed ourselves to give in to them, that we would be deemed failures if we were to give in to these things. For instance, maybe you grew up with a bad home life. Uh, maybe you had parents uh, who were divorced or that lived together, but maybe they seemed like they were divorced, even though they lived together. Or maybe you didn't grow up with one parent uh, or another parent or maybe either parent. Uh, maybe you were always the one in the family who people said would never amount to anything. I never have understood why a parent would look at a child and say you'll never amount to anything. But I've talked to many people over the years who have said that they've had a parent or they had a loved one or even a teacher. I, I pastored or was a youth pastor uh, to several different people over the years at Westgate who told me that the previous youth pastor had basically told them they would never amount to anything. And I thought, what an awful thing to tell a child. What an awful thing to tell a young person who has their whole life ahead of them that they'll never amount to anything. And maybe you had that, and you dealt with the doubt, and you dealt with the fear of that. Maybe that's what you're dealing with tonight. Uh, they were, maybe you were taken advantage of uh, by someone you trusted. You were taken advantage of financially, or you were taken advantage of physically, or you were taken advantage of emotionally, or that there was some sort of, of relationship in the past, or there was something that was done to you. Uh, that could be what it is. Uh, there are some who have medical bills that have wrecked havoc with their finances. It, you know, it, it, it's so sad to me when I think of people that have to declare bankruptcy or people that go into awful, awful financial situations, and the only reason they're there is because of their health. It's not even because they've been bad with their money. It's not even because they haven't been able to handle their money well, but the medical bills piled up faster than they were able to take care of them, and they have these issues that they have to deal with, uh, and maybe they feel like a failure because they were doing so well financially, or they, they seemed like they had their ducks in order, but, it, but the, 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 what was coming in uh, was coming in faster than they could pay it out, and that could be it. People who lost their job due to the economy. They were good workers. They were good employees. They gave their life to their work. They, they, they sunk their teeth into it. And before they knew it, they got a pink slip because of the economy. Or they had a job. They had their own business. But because of the way life goes, uh, because of the way the economy goes, maybe that didn't go the way that they wanted to do. I mean, could, could we say this? There's a lot of reasons in our life, and that's just a very small taste of it. There's a lot of reasons in our life uh, that we could be deemed failures uh, because of something that was completely out of our own control. Not because we did it, not because we sinned or we gave into the flesh. It's just because we live in a wicked, sin-cursed world where things happen that we don't always know why they happen, but they happen to us, and it was tragic, and it was difficult, and it happened to us. And, and, and understand this tonight. That may be you. In fact, I would say it is you because our stories are different. Again, if we were to just take some time and you know sit around in a circle and say, hey, tell us your worst story or tell us your worst story, I mean... It could probably get pretty ugly. So our pain is different, but I would say each is carrying some sort of pain from the past here tonight. And I don't want you to think that I'm minimizing that pain this evening, but there's something I want to say to you tonight that I want you to understand that there's only one thing you understand tonight. I hope it will be this. The failures of the past done to you cannot stop you from being a person that's faithful. 
The failures of the past that were done to you cannot stop you from being a person that's faithful. They cannot. They cannot. Well, pastor, it's just insurmountable. You're saying that God put you in a situation where there was no hope of you being faithful. That God has placed you in a situation where he's boxed you in, he's hemmed you in. It's not because you have sinned and he's trying to chastise you, correct you lovingly, to try to bring you back into the fold. These are things that were done to you, that happened to you, that had nothing to do with you, but in the course of life, this has come across your path. And God has put these things in your path just so you could never serve him. That flies totally contrary to what I know about the character of God. Or could it be that God has brought some things into your life that were out of your control because he was trying to strengthen you, because he's trying to help you, because he's trying to make you the person that he's called you to be? You know, nobody likes to lift weights. Nobody likes to go to the gym. Well, I say nobody. There's some people that really enjoy going to the gym. I mean, God bless. I haven't I've met many of them, uh, but uh, there's some people that really enjoy it. Here's what I know about physical exercise. It hurts. You sweat. I mean, if you're doing it right. It causes some activity. In the middle of it, sometimes you're wondering, why am I doing this? But when you're done, you realize, you know what? That was for my benefit. That was for my help. And if that's true about something small like the physical, how much true is that with God who brings things into our life and and knowing that all things work together for good to them who love God and to them who are the called according to his purpose, Romans chapter 8. That God brings these things in your life, not saying that they are good, but that only God is powerful enough to take the things of life that are perceived to be bad and to take them, create them, and fashion them into something that is good for our life. Only God can do that. Only God can take someone that was growing up in a broken home where it seemed like there was no hope and make them into someone who can have a Psalm 127 home where the Lord builds the house and they have children that are raised in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. God can do that. God can take someone who has had the pain of having someone break and violate their trust as a young child and be able to use them to be able to help others in the future. Or someone who experienced an untimely death in their family something they weren't expecting. And every death is tragic, but sometimes those that are unexpected, very young, very surprising in the way that it happened, that God could use that same person to be able to be a help and a blessing to other people. You see, uh, this man of failure was willing to become a man of faith. And because of that, uh, we have a great legacy of Jephthah uh, because he didn't allow these things that deemed him to be a failure to keep him from serving God. You know, a child who didn't know one or two of their parents can grow up to serve God. A child who wished they didn't know one or two of their parents can grow up to serve God. A child born uh, due to rape can grow up to serve God. A person who has fallen on hard times can serve God. A person who has been disrespected by society by no fault of their own can serve God. A woman who is barren 
can serve God. A man who is unable to father children can serve God. A person with a disability can serve God. These are people that can serve God. And no matter what your circumstances are, the things that have been done to you, that there is nothing that can happen to you in your life that can keep you from serving God if you're willing to submit yourself to him. In fact, I could submit to you that in some ways it would make you even more qualified to be able to be a blessing and a help and faithful because of what God has done in your life and through your life and in your life. You know, there are certain things that I look at people as a pastor and I try to help them. And I know for some people it rings hollow. There are people that I've tried to help with drugs and alcohol. And I can take them to the word of God and tell them what, tell, what talks to them about them, about these situations. And I'm not saying that those people aren't appreciative. They are. Well, what about someone that can talk about how it's affected their home? Maybe someone that realizes that they had a loved one that was a user and they're able to talk to that person from a completely different situation, a completely different vantage point. I know a couple pastors who have children who have died. What a tragic thing that is. The, the, the order of life reversed when the parents have to bury the child. I'm thinking of one pastor in particular who I may have referenced here before, but his about 30-year-old son was working on a car, on a lift. Uh, not on a lift, but, you know, on, on some uh, lifts on the ground, not necessarily a hydraulic lift. And because of the shifting of the car, something that happened, it fell down and crushed him, and he died. Pastor of a church of a couple hundred, church that I've been to before. You know that that pastor and his wife have been able to be a vessel of grace to people all around the country. Just wrote a book about their experience. Be able to put the hands of people. Be able to help them. Now, does that make losing their son good? No, I'm, I'm not wild enough to try to sell that to you tonight. But I know this. God can make something good out of it. Because that's who God is. That pastor had a choice. Quit the ministry. Quit preaching. Or maybe just keep going, but just as a hollow shell of who he is. You know what I've seen in situations like this? Husband blames wife. Wife blames husband. Kids blame parents. And all of a sudden, the family's pulled apart. But there were some people who decided this. We're going to serve God. Dad and mom now are in evangelism. They get to travel around and help churches with situations much similar to this. The next oldest son is now the pastor of that church and is doing well. Well, who can do that? Only God. Only God can take someone that's deemed a failure by circumstances out of their control and take them down the path of faithfulness. Now, I think this is funny. This is not funny, but this is ironic. Nobody wants anything to do with Jephthah. Until they were in trouble. It just so happened that Jephthah had accumulated a little bit of an army. You notice that in verse number three? Those vain men that I told you to remember a few minutes ago. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think of someone who's vain, it doesn't conjure up a really good thought, does it? I mean, hey, how would you like to be surrounded by vain people? <laughs> how about I get an ice pick right there in my eye? No, it, I mean, I don't, it doesn't sound like a good thing at all. 
Uh, actually, I think I'd prefer that to the ice pick in the eye now that I think about it. But anyway, that definitely wasn't in my notes. But uh, I, I wouldn't want to be surrounded by vain people. But you'll remember just a few services ago, I referenced that word vain means empty. Empty. And I believe from the context of what we see here, the context of what we see here is clear. That what he was collecting was not necessarily people who were consumed with themselves. People that were inherently sinful in the way that they were handling themselves. He was collecting a group of people that in many ways felt as empty as he did. Say, oh, pastor, I don't know. I I mean, you're kind of stretching that a little bit. I mean, could that possibly happen? Could I just mentally take you to someplace else in your Bible for a second where we know that was the case? David was on the run. David had issues in his life. Saul wanted to kill him. And the Bible says that as he went out into the wilderness, there was a group of men that followed. And you know who they were? Men who also had difficulties similar to David's. And he grew this merry band of men, if you will, that went out and defended him, the future king of Israel, defended his honor. In fact, they had some problems because after a while, they went some places they probably didn't need to go, including living in the land of the Philistines for a little while. But even then, out of that group came of some of David's mighty men of valor that you read about later. I believe that's what we see here similarly when it says they're these vain men. It's not that he was surrounding himself by men who were inherently sinful. It's just that there were other people that felt the same way. And they were magnetically drawn to a man like this who didn't allow himself to become a victim, who didn't allow himself to get bitter, but realized this, there's other people I can help who've had a similar story. And if I allow myself to give this to the Lord, then who knows how he can use it. And it just so happened, the same people that pushed him away years later said this, Jephthah, we need your help. We don't know what to do. And recognizing their duplicity, he says this. He says, well, I don't mind helping you, but I have a feeling I know what you're going to do. As soon as I help you achieve the victory, you're going to kick me back to the curb. There's only one way I'm going to help you. He says, if you make me judge, if you allow me to rule over all of Israel when we're done, if I'm good enough to lead you in battle, then I'm good enough to be your judge. And to that, they agreed. Now, how do I know that Jephthah didn't have a victim mentality? How did I know that this person of perceived failure became a person of faith? Well, there's a few ways, very quickly. Verse number one, how is he first referenced before as he's referenced as the son of a harlot? He was referenced as a mighty man of valor. He's a mighty man of valor. So you already knew the end of the story at the beginning, didn't we? That he was a mighty man of valor. We know in verse three, he gathered other vain men like him. He didn't do it by bearing grievances. You know, sometimes I've noticed this, someone who is bitter can attract bitter people. I've watched that before, too. Complainers draw complainers. Rebels draw rebels. But it doesn't seem like that's the case here because this is a man that was a mighty man of valor who wanted to follow God. If they were all bitter and they were all angry and they were all vain in the sense that they were all sinful in their flesh and were wanting to indulge in their flesh, then why on earth would they want to follow him who was a mighty man of valor? They wouldn't want nothing to do with him. It's funny, verses number four through 10, that back and forth that was there between him and the people of Gilead and the people of Israel, 
Listen, if it was me and I had been in exile and those same people came crawling back to me, I would have got just a little bit of satisfaction from watching those people that didn't need me a few years ago begging me for help now. I might have actually enjoyed it a little bit. I might have made it a little painful for him, to be quite honest with you. But we don't even see a hint of that, do we? He recognizes it's the right thing to be able to help his people. They hadn't been good to him, but he was going to be good to them. Is there not a lesson there for us? When people do us wrong, what does the Bible say? Do wrong to them back. Get even, baby. That's not what the word says at all. It says, do what? Turn the other cheek. Someone compels you to go a mile, you go with them twain. So I see that. We ended on verse number 11. Did you notice something interesting there? It says, then Jephthah went out with the elders, or went with the elders uh, of Gilead, and the people made him head and captain over them. And Jephthah uttered all his words before the Lord in Mitzpah. You know, in Mitzpah at that time, I think believe from this connotation, it would have been very clear that's where the tabernacle was. That's where the presence of God would have been. And so what did Jephthah do? He says, before we go any further, I got to speak with the Lord. Well, I say that speaks volumes about his character, doesn't it? That speaks volumes about who he was. And on top of that, if you go to verse number 29, very quickly, I also see this. It says this, at the heat of the battle, then the spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. And we can just stop right there. He was a man that God was willing to use. So he was a man who could have been a failure, but he was a man who was faithful and God was willing to use him because he wasn't about going to be a victim. He was actually able to minister to more people. He was actually be able to be a help to more people. He was actually able to help empty people like him because he was willing to take those hurts that were done to him and give them to the Lord. How faithful was Jephthah? I could hear you asking it. How faithful was he? We'll stop here. Turn to Hebrews 11. Hebrews chapter 11, verse number 31. It says this. And remember, Hebrews chapter 11 is the list of faithful saints from the Old Testament. By faith, the harlot Rahab. Well, there's, there's something interesting right there. That kind of hits close to home to Jephthah, doesn't it? Now, that wasn't his mother, obviously. We, we go back to Joshua and understand that was the case. But, but consider this. Here is a woman who was a harlot. And in fact, interestingly enough, that she is even referenced as the harlot in Hebrews 11. I think there's a whole message probably going to be preached right there of that. By faith, the harlot Rahab perished not with them that believed not when she had received the spies with peace. Verse 32. And what shall I more say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and of Barak and of Samson and of Jephthah. Who did he become? A man of faith. So much so that we still name his name today, not just in the Old Testament, but from the New Testament as well. And I read verse 31 on purpose as well, because here's a woman who lived a life of difficulty by her own doing. Now that's different from Jephthah, wasn't it? She committed that own goal, didn't she? She lived a life that was wrong. She willfully made those choices. 
but through faith in Christ, became a woman who is mentioned in Hebrews 11. And then in the very next verse is Jephthah, who was the son of a woman, much like a Rahab. And it was of no fault of his own, the difficulties of his life. And yet here is a man of faith. So what do we see? When we make mistakes, when we willfully sin, we give those to God, and we can be people of faith. And remember, there's a lot of that more than we would like to admit in our life. That sometimes the difficulties we're going through is not because, well, it's just the troubles of life. It's just a cross I have to bear. No, it's because you sinned. And God's correcting you because he loves you. That's Hebrews 12. And we accept that. We should. But then there's also the Rahab, but then the Jephthah. He didn't do anything. It wasn't his fault. He was born in trouble. He was in a broken home. He was banished. He was barren from having a man-child to carry on his name. But he became a man named in Hebrews chapter 11. Psalm 90 verse 9 says this, For all our days are passed away in thy wrath. We spend our years as a tale that is told. You know, the pen of life is in your hand this evening. If our life is as a tale is told, the pen of life is in your hand this evening. And your life story is not written by forces outside of your control. Well, my story is going to be a hard one because of, no, no. You get to write your life story by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. That your story is not about what was done to you, but your story is about what you will do with the life that God has given you and that you will use the resources of life in a life of faith. Thank you for listening to this sermon from the pulpit of Liberty Baptist Church. If this message was a blessing to you, or if there's any way we can serve you, please let us know by contacting us at info at mylibertybaptist.org, or you can visit us this Sunday at 800 Washington Street in Easton, Massachusetts. May the Lord bless you as you grow in His Word.